Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum that explores everything pertinent to digital trust. And I'm your host, Mathieu Glaude. I was looking at the latest air travel outlook for 2024, and it's looking like it's going to be the biggest year volume-wise in history for global passenger traffic. So global air travel passenger traffic had dropped after COVID, but had basically in 2023, we're almost back to where we were in 2019 pre-COVID and 2024 is looking like we're going to pass that. I've flown quite a few times this year. I know you've flown uh, quite a few times this year, maybe a little bit too much for our likings, but I'm sure a lot of the listeners here have also traveled through airports. And when traveling through airports, I start to think more and more now that you know, having been in, in this digital identity space for a little while now of all the different things that are happening there. So um, maybe a good starting point for the conversation today is who is that organization? Who is the body that helps develop specifications, standards, alignments on an international standpoint um, that makes sure that whether I'm, I'm coming into an airport in Canada, the US, or even in Europe, that there's you know, it's it's pretty smooth. I'm able to use the same documents. So maybe we could start from that standpoint, which is more of just from a governance body standpoint. Who facilitates all of this? The facilitator is uh, a UN agency called the International Civil Aviation Organization. So they were given the authority, I think, back in the 30s under a, a Geneva Convention, I believe, um, uh, to do exactly what you said, to govern it. Now, you also threw in there some of the technical standards bits. So what ICAO and its 190-plus um, member state uh, body relies on, IKEA, uh, on ISO uh, for its standards. So within ISO, there's a lot of subcommittees. Subcommittee 17, Working Group 3, um, uh, deal with travel documents and specifically, um, uh, you know, ICAO's travel documents. So ICAO is the governing body and um, uh, ISO SC17 Working Group 3 is the standards body that brings us uh, the the standards. I'll, I'll end that uh, thread with the ultimate document for passports and e-passports is ICAO Doc 9303, and that's that calls out several um, ISO standards. Does so I, ICAO works with? I guess if we you, you split it up into two kind of side of things, one being just the the governance business side interactions with the different countries or states, and then on the second side with the standards. If we just talk about that that first side, so um, with the United States, Canada are part of. What's the dynamics between the countries and, and ICAO, and how did how did that result in these passports being created, or at least alignment on that? Yeah, so you know the the ICAO headquarters is uh, up in in Mon Montreal, and when you go there, it looks like a UN entity. In other words, they have a, a, a big auditorium with a, a bunch of um, uh, chairs with each member state uh, listed on there. And they have regular meetings, um, sometimes regional, sometimes international, where all the member states literally, you know, show up and um, they have interpreters, I think typically four or five languages, live interpretation, and they discuss um, 
um, what what's been going well, what's not been going so well, what changes they want at these uh, at these meetings, where uh, again there's um, you know hundreds of member states that um, talk uh, you know talk about this. There's a dedicated new technologies working group, uh, which is more on the technical side. I know you're asking about governance here, but um, that's where the um, the uh, I wish I had ultimately winds up like from those meetings where they talk about governance and what's going well and what they want changed. That's ultimately where those business um, uh, decisions and, and requests ultimately uh, get filtered down to the new technology working group. And it seems like authentication at airports through passports, not everywhere, but there, there's a trend where they're increasingly becoming more like mach machine authentication. So I'm maybe getting less stamps in my passport, but when I show up, I have to put my passport inside of a machine. There's some selfies, some biometrics that happen there. So that that's kind of happening today with the physical passport. So is that kind of the transition, I guess, from just physical to digital? Because my input that I'm giving still relies on something physical. And I guess at the same time, like different countries have their different roadmaps. So I guess they have to adhere to certain rules, but not every country is going to be on the same pace of accelerating the digitization of, of these processes as well. So what am I trying to get to here is um, borders increasingly relying on machine authentication, just accelerating the digitization of kind of a physical passport booklet. Yeah, so I, I think we're seeing more automation um, enabled by the e-passport um, in general. But there's a couple things in what you said. So why why are they doing it? I think there's two main reasons. Um, one you said is is the um, the document authentication with an e-passport, um, uh, the e for electronic, as opposed to a uh, regular passport, which has no um, chip in it, uh, basically an ISO 14443 is, defines the air interface, you know, an NFC read or RFID read. Um, that's what differentiates an e-passport from a passport. There are still countries that are not issuing e-passports. Um, totally paper. Um, it is DOP 9303 compliant, but it's not an e-passport. It's not an e-MRTD, as it's called, machine-readable travel document. It's still a machine-readable travel document, but it's optically machine-readable, not electronically machine-readable. Anyhow, so what? So the trend in in this automation that you you speak of is um, again to electronically authenticate the the document to prove its um, authenticity and integrity authenticity based on the cryptographic country signing cert and integrity based on um, basically the uh, uh, the I'll call it checksum the, the when the when the digital signing is done it has a uh, they call it SOD a data signing object um, so that you could tell that all the data within the logical data structure is intact it hasn't been manipulated since the country, um, that issued it, you know, signed it. So you're looking at, so the first thing you're doing when you do that electronic read is determining the authenticity and integrity. Um, the other aspect of an e-passport, which in 1995, when it was introduced, 
was called the biometric passport. ICAO decided and its member states, the best way to bind uh, that document to the presenter um, is through biometrics. In other words, is Dan presenting Dan's passport or is Dan presenting Matthew's passport? So the best way to, to bind the presenter of the document to the authorized holders through biometrics. So in 1995, they changed Doc 9303 to mandate the um, inclusion of a photo um, uh, in in uh, the e-passport. Um, so in that automation, apart from the document authentication uh, part of the automation, the other part when you walk up to an e-gate or a kiosk that's reading the passport is to take a live photo of the subject presenting the passport uh, like in an e-gate um, and matching it against the, the photo in the chip. So those are the two main things that we're seeing a trend of more and more out in the borders is that automation to um, to do the biometric comparison of the presenter of the document to the document and to check the authenticity and integrity of the document. So whether it's a border agent or a machine, th these checks are happening. So if it's a border agent, they have a reader, I guess, themselves to do these certificate checks and then the integrity checks as well on the data signing object and then the machine would do the same thing and it just takes my selfie and does a comparison of the two is that, is that absolutely absolutely correct the um the the refinement that i would say is when the border guard does it and they do exactly what you said they typically like when i just was coming back last week from france uh, they do entry and exit in europe so on exit they took my passport they put it on the scanner um, and then the officer looked at the photo from the passport and looked at me. Now, what NIST and other entities have proven is that modern facial recognition is more accurate at recognizing unfamiliar faces than humans. So, yes, most border guards check the authenticity of the document electronically and do a, a manual facial compare, which, again, is less accurate than model, modern facial recognition. So an e-gate will probably do a better job at recognizing, um, you know, the live face against the passport face um, than a human. Do all countries have to do both entry and exit kind of validations? Uh, how do you? How does one decide which ones to do? I'm assuming everyone has to do entry, but exit maybe is not required. It, right, right. So the U.S., Canada, U.K. Uh, we all do uh, uh, entry immigration checks only. In the U.S., we're trying to do biometric exit um, or exit in general, um, but we're going from no exit control to, as, um, as a result of September 11th, Congress said in 2002, I believe it was, maybe 2003, that within two years, Department of Homeland Security shall have a comprehensive biometric entry exit system. Well, we got entry done in like 2005 timeframe, a biometric entry, but not biometric exit because we have no exit control. To, so to go from no exit control to biometric exit uh, proved to be a, a huge challenge. We're getting there in terms of airports, but land border is going to be a, a challenge. Now in Europe, they have today, but um, uh, entry exit control. It's manual as we were just talking about. And there still is passport stamping. So they physically stamp your passport on entry and on exit. Now with the entry exit system legislation 
adopted a few years ago, um, the European um, uh, IT agency called uh, ELISA is standing up the entry-exit system technology um, to do comprehensive biometric entry and exit for all third-country nationals. So we will have a biometric component to our entry and exit as third-country nationals coming into and leaving Europe, um, and that will replace passport stamping. Your next question may be, well, why is there passport stamping on entry exit to begin with? It's you know it's primarily to determine overstays. Um, in you know uh, in the U.S. we had um, I-94s and I-95s. These were um, uh, tokens that are used for arrival departure coupons, and we were using those that paper based means. Um, to determine overstays, to check, because on, on entry, um, we, we d determine when someone arrived on exit, you're supposed to return your I-94 coupon, and then we could tell that you left. We got rid of I-94s for airlines um, several years ago, because now airlines, we use the airline manifest to determine when you departed. And as you might be able to tell, there's, you know, it's fairly accurate, but not that accurate. And and because there's no biometrics involved, it might be Matthew exited the country on Dan's information, on Dan's ticket, and you'd be recorded as Dan exiting when I never did. So that's why one of the reasons why the 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 legislation in the US is there to do biometric uh, entry and exit for all third country nationals. Um, and again, we're getting there, not quite there. But um, Europe, um, uh, again, the biometric uh, entry exit system that's coming online is going to give more accurate overstay information to Europe. Again, they're doing entry and exit stamping today. Um, but again, it's, it's travel document based, not biometric based. Is there, just like there's alignment through ICAO on just the governance, the types of travel documents and the standards used for that, both for physical and digital. How, how, how does biometrics work between countries as well? Is, is there a similar organization or similar standards that are in, in place to make sure that there is um, people are speaking the same language or using the same technologies and it may be worth taking a step back and just talking about we, we, we say we say biometrics a lot, but what are we really talking about here when, yeah. when we're saying biometrics in regard to travel? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good, good question. Um, so within the uh, KO doc ninety three hundred three, they call out um, the logical data structure um, that includes all the biographic and biometric bits that make up a, a passport. So what's required is uh, data group one, which is pretty much the same information that you could read on the on the data page. Um, uh, of your passport, then data group two is required, and that's a photo. Um, so to your question, what, uh, how do they ensure interoperability with that photo? What specs? So they call out ISO specs on um, the interchange standard for that. It was 19794-5, it's now 39794-5, and that's an interchange standard. It says, how is that photo packaged? Um, and it has quality metrics in that. What we're working on in ISO is a pure quality standard called 29794-5. It's in the works, it's not done yet. When it's done, 
we presume that ISO, uh, that ICAO will adopt that standard. Right now, the current ISO um, ICAO spec calls out ISO 39794-5, which again is an interchange standard that has quality metrics in it. Um, there's things in that standard like resolution, typically like the number of pixels between the eyes. Like the um, there's I think 20 some odd plus or minus quality parameters. There's things like the resolution, um, uh, background noise, uh, blur, um, uh, hot spots, um, uh, uh, mouth open is a quality metric. So that's why when you go to take your passport photo, they say, don't smile, just do a, a normal pose. There's things like um, how much of the frame you fill with your, you know, with your head, basically. And for Ikeo, it's they call it full frontal. So no side, you know, no pitch, no yaw. So all those things are specced out, um, including the resolution, including that it's a JPEG image, not a template. There were there's some debate early on when the passport chips were slow and did not have a lot of memory. So you can imagine of you know a, a you know a, a photograph, a photo from a modern digital camera could be you know gigabytes, you know tens of megabytes, and trying to jam that on a chip would be impossible back in '95 when they created the biometric passport. So they settled on a, a JPEG photo of, uh, with no more compression than 15 to one compression ratio and a bunch of resolution specs. So that's how they got interoperability. It's just a photo, not a template. And it, it, just for the audience, so templates are typically um, derived using a proprietary biometric um, uh, matching vendors uh, uh, feature extractor, as it's called. And what it does is it saves space. So if you share templates, you're, you're talking you know, hundreds or thousands of bytes instead of kilobytes, um, you know, that a photo is typically 25, 50 kilobytes. Um, so a template would save space, but it locks you into that version of that vendor. Now, we, there are ISO templates um, that are interoperable, but the trade-off there is um, you get interoperability, but you get um, a higher error rate. Um, so proprietary templates give you much more, much better matching performance in terms of accuracy. Um, but again, it locks you into that version of that vendor. So even if you preferred vendor A, if you use their template and then vendor A a year from now comes up with a new algorithm, well, your passport that's typically good for 10 years is locked into that version of that um, template. That's why it's photos. And if the template um, you want to use is from vendor A, then fine. You extract those features. You generate that template in your eGate live. You don't put it in the, you know, put it in the chip of the passport. That was the compromise. When you say accuracy of, of the photo, so you're comparing it against something. So if if we just look at a normal air travel where I'm doing both entries and exits, so I'll, I'll start with an exit check, so I'm leaving, and then I'll do an entry check, and then when I'm, let's say I'm just doing a simple trip and I'm going back home, I'm going to exit the place that I visited and I'm going to enter the place again. So if there's four checks there, the exit, entry, exit, entry, 
um when we you mentioned the accuracy of, of the photos so what is this being compared against in different locations like what are these systems of records in different locations or is the the foreign country i'm visiting just comparing my biometrics against kind of my my home base but what's happening there in terms of establishing accuracy right so um okay so a couple main points there so um the first main point is all biometric systems are probabilistic not deterministic in that all biometric systems have type one and type two errors that's what i'm talking about in terms of accuracy it's not of the photo itself but the you know the quality of the photo will impact matching accuracy when accuracy is really on 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 the matcher um and the uh, all, all biometric matchers will have type one which are false rejects and type two which are uh, false matches so the false reject is Mathieu is using Mathieu's passport trying to get through an e, uh, e gate and it says eh, no it's not you you're not the real Matt so that's a uh, Mathieu that's a false reject that's a convenience type of parameter whereas a, a false um, accept or false match is you know, um, Matthew's using Dan's passport and says, okay, go ahead, you know, well, that's a security, you know, so we want to keep the false matches as low as possible. And what what system owners should be doing is looking at the receiver operating characteristic curves of the matcher vendor they choose. And they say, I want, they typically say, I want that false match rate or false accept rate to be as low as possible, let's say like one in a hundred thousand. Now, if you select that and you look in that that characteristic curve, when you're at one in a hundred thousand false matches, your false reject might be let's say one in a hundred. But as a security, as a border officer, you're you know you're concerned about convenience, but let's say less concerned about convenience and more concerned about security. So if Matthew is rejected one in a hundred times, okay, that's acceptable if I'm gonna make sure that um, uh, I'm gonna let fewer bad guys who are fewer uh, imposters through. Um, so that's the one thing, the the false, um, you know, all biometric matches have false, uh, 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 false rejects and false matches. Now, the other dimension is to your question is, what is it comparing against? In a lot of countries, um, they, they take the live face, they generate the feature, they use vendor A or you know whoever the vendor is to generate features, and then they read your passport photo and they generate features from that. And they do a one-to-one -one match, the, the features from your live face against the features from your passport face. Like in Canada, for example, they do that comparison at the kiosk and then they delete everything within 24 hours. Um, in the US, on the other hand, uh, what we're seeing, let's say with um, um, the, the expedited arrivals. So because CBP has photos of US citizens and of third country nationals, if they encountered them before, if you're a first time visitor, let's say from the UK, it's a visa waiver country, then right, CBP wouldn't have your info. But if you had crossed before, or if you had a visa, they would have all your information. So when you walk up to CBP, they're getting your live face, extracting features, and comparing it against the, the photo that they have on file. 
if you were uh, if you had interacted with CBP before. If you hadn't interacted with CBP before, it goes back to what we talked about in a minute ago. The CBP would scan your passport, get the photo from the passport. Um, and either the inspector would look at you and look at the passport photo and do the manual match, or some of them they have a, a, a camera um, where they would do the the, the live one, uh, you know, um, live face against the uh, the chip face. And then uh, CBP uh, has a retention policy, so that those background photos that we mentioned, um, Customs and Border Protection does have a 75-year uh, retention on their biometrics that are on file for all third country nationals. Now that EES system that I mentioned, which will go live, uh, the last I heard was November of this year, of uh, I'm sorry, of 24. They're, they What they negotiated when they finalized um, the uh, legislation is a three-year retention policy. So for all third country nationals, the first time I arrive in Europe, I'm going to give four fingerprints for my right hand and a face. That gets enrolled into the entry exit system, and it will stay there for three years so that every subsequent interaction, um, the, uh, the member state will use either finger or face to biometrically authenticate me on subsequent entries and exits. And as long as all my entries and exit match, after three years, it gets wiped out. Then the next time I visit, it's going to start over again. Four fingerprints in the right hand and face, three years. Canada, like I said, there is no retention um, when they collect biometrics. It's uh, typically, I think it was 24 hours, like when you use the kiosk in Canada. Yeah, okay. So th that was quite helpful. So we're, we're really just talking about comparison of a photo, which you said is a JPEG image that is in my document versus just my live biometric that is taken. And there, there's a comparison done on that. For folks that don't have passports that have like they'll travel with a visa or even if we're talking about just um like local air travel where you could use something like a driver's license do, do these things have the same levels of um integrity i guess or the, the similar standards around how images are put into these things i, I don't even know if they're electronic to begin with um, and then how biometric assessments are done, like if you're traveling with a visa or a driver's license, if it's in, in a local case, um, what are the similarities or differences between the processes that you've been describing so far as we've been talking about passports? Yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot of good roots in that question. So the um, in I'll give the U.S. for example. So the U.S. has... Um, designated 41 countries as visa waiver countries. So, and why are they visa waiver? Um, there's a, a couple of reasons why they th these countries have proven to um, their citizens have not overstayed uh, their welcome uh, to a, to whatever degree Department of State says. So they're, they're kind of like most favored nation sort of status, if you will. The other dimension is they're, they're passport issuance process 
is known to be solid, that they they are very careful in their passport production, very diligent. They follow ICAO guidelines uh, under the name of TRIP, the Traveler Identification Program, where they talk about not just quality of the photos in there, but the security of uh, how do they keep the passport books secure uh, before they're issued so that a criminal organization can't get a hold of them, all that. So w there's 41 visa waiver countries where, again, we trust their passports a bit more than others. Everybody else is a visa country. So we say, you know what, uh, um, whatever, I don't want to pick on a country, Uzbekistan, whatever. Um, you know, we don't know or we don't trust your passport issuing process and you want to visit the U.S., have your citizens visit a consular office. We'll collect 10 prints and a photograph at that point. We'll do background checks with those fingerprints against various databases, um, including FBI's and Department of Homeland Securities, um, where we're checking for criminal activity. Um, and when you arrive, um, we're going to check to make sure that the fingerprints and or face match those that were collected at the consular office. So we're not even looking necessarily at the passport at that point. Again, because we don't trust it as much. That's why it's a visa country. So that's one dimension. So that's the, the another dimension. I'll go back to the uh, European entry exit system legislation. Well, they know that countries like the US and Canada and UK um, have poor quality photos that um, that are easily morphed. What does that mean? So when I went to get my passport, I took my own photo with my camera um, and uh, and I manipulated it. What? Now, I didn't create a morph, which is taking, let's say, three images and morphing them together. So <clears throat> any of those three people can get through the e-gate using that document. I just changed the contrast on mine because it's a little bit dark, but I manipulated the photo. And then I sent that in and um, it was poor quality and there was no um, uh, quality checks that I could tell that Department of State did. They just took it and then cryptographically signed it and said, good to go. The European entry exit legislation in Article 15 says, oh, no, 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 no. When you go to when this third country national arrives, do not use passports. Take four fingerprints from the right hand take a live photo, enter that into EES, and every subsequent entry or exit compared against that biometric, not the biometric in the e-passport, with one, you know, with an exclusion of if the officer that's collecting the four fingerprints in the face just could not get good quality for whatever reason, they had left them in out, and then they said, okay, if you can't do it for some reason, use the passport photo. But, but that, that's exception case only. And this goes, again, I need to emphasize this, this goes for um, digital travel credentials, which are derived from the passport book. If you have a passport book from a country that does not do, um, well, three things, um, and ensure that the photo's captured live by a, uh, by a trusted entity um, that does a quality check, and that um, that uh, proves uh, to a certain degree that that individual's unique within the context. With passport, I should be unique within the country. 
How did Department of State prove that uh, I'm the one and only Dan Bacchanino with this passport number? Um, and that's supposed to be part of this traveler identification program. How accurate was that? Like in the case of India, for example, um, in Aadhaar, they use um, finger, 10 fingerprints and two irises to deduplicate 1.3 billion residents of India. In the U.S., we have face only and demographics. So whether you're male, female, or of a certain age, they use those to filter the, the data. And as soon as you start introducing demographic information, you're introducing more errors than biometric errors only. This has all been super helpful context. Um, I wanted to talk about the digital travel credential on this episode with you, and it, it felt like it was worth just spending a little bit of time just understanding the general landscape as it exists today, because I think it will help just understand how we're evolving or what, what the digital travel credential looks like. So just basic off the bat, you kind of just mentioned that in your one of your previous comments that it's derived from the passport book. But um, if we just take a step back, what is the digital travel credential and how does it relate to all of the stuff that we've been talking about so far in this conversation? Right, right. So what ICAO has done um, is they created uh, uh, a pathway for the uh, three types of digital travel credentials. Um, so uh, why? Because right now today, um, what we've been talking about is presenting a passport book in person to a, a border officer. Um, well, what if we, in the case of like an electronic travel authorization, which uh, we are uh, required to do to visit certain countries, um, but it's all text-based and it's text, uh, text that I, as a traveler, would fill out on a web page. So what uh, the member states uh, that participate in ICAO said, wouldn't it be cool, wouldn't it be great if I could get the cryptographically signed information from a passport ahead of time before the, the traveler arrives uh, at my border? Um, and so what ICAO did was they said, okay, let's work on that. And they came up with these three types of digital travel credentials. DTC type one, digital travel credential type one, is, as we just mentioned, derived from uh, an already provisioned uh, e-passport. And so with, um, with many uh, mobile phones today, the traveler um, can uh, basically read the chip of the passport and derive, as it's called, the, the same logical data structure that we talked about a few minutes ago um, that has the two required data groups. Data group one and data group two are the only mandatory data groups from, uh, from the e-passport, which has, I believe it's 16 data groups. So data group one, just to refresh, is the, the demographic or biographic information uh, pretty much that you see on the data page. And data group two is the photo. So what the DTC um, spec says is just that. DG1, DG2 with the data signing object um, to make sure that the, you know, the cryptographic integrity is there and it has the same country signing cert. So it's basically the DTC type one is uh, uh, basically a copy of, of the data within the chip, but without, you know, without the um, uh, need to have a physical 
document um, at the point where you share it. Now, one of the requirements for travel under DTC is to have the, uh, the book with you. So that's a requirement. Um, and it's up to the country to, to say present it or not. But um, the, the beauty of the DTC is that most countries already have legislation to say for international, you know, for cross-border travel, you need to be traveling on a KO Doc 9303 approved travel credential. DTCs are Doc 9303 approved because it's the same lot cryptographic integrity as a, a as your passport. Um, there's a few DTC Type One pilots going on uh, today in Canada and Europe. Uh, I think in Southeast Asia they have some DTC pilots going on, um, and. Again, the, the the really good thing about that is you could get that same cryptographically signed information before the traveler hits the border, so countries can start processing. Right now, if um, Mathieu gets a hold of my DTC, Mathieu could share it and say um, that Dan's could be crossing the border, and they'll start processing Dan's information. But when Mathieu shows up at the border and claims to be Dan, Mathieu hopefully is going to have some problems, right? Um, so, um, so yes, countries could start processing it. But again, if if it's a U.S. passport, I could very easily do a morph of Dan and Mathieu, put that in my passport, and then both of us could get through an e-gate. And and a lot of times, both of us would be recognized as legitimate by a human as well. There's been less testing of that. I know countries have tested the morphing problem and shown that it's a, a real problem. Um, and one of the things that ICAO said, because ICAO could just provide guidance. So what ICAO New Technology Working Group was contemplating was putting in a flag in the logical data structure to, to determine whether the photo was taken live or not. And then it's up to the member state, if the photo wasn't taken live, should that person be allowed to go through an e-gate? Um, or, uh, and if it wasn't taken live, presumably they would go through manual inspection and the, the uh, inspector would be looking out for potential morph. Um, and there's some morph detection algorithms that are, um, uh, that are being used more and more today uh, to look for morphs. Um, okay, and then uh, DTC type two is, um, Okay, so DTC type one, once you derive the credential, they call that a virtual component, and your passport book is the physical component. In DTC type two, what um, and um, the, the final specs aren't out yet, but the proposed, the proposition is, well, DTC type two is the issuing agency that issues your passport book, the physical component, will now issue you a virtual component, basically, so you don't have to derive it yourself, which, you know, to, you know, uh, Joe or Jane citizen may be, um, may be difficult, right? Maybe they don't have a phone, maybe they're not digitally proficient. So they'll say, okay, type two, the issuing agency will issue you a, um, a virtual component straight away so that you could use it the way you want. And the physical component could be a book that uh, could be um, 
something else. It could be like a, a USB key or something like that. In Type 3, they go totally digital. There, there's no physical component. It's a 100% virtual component. Um, again, issued by the issuing agency that would issue your uh, your passport. Um, but yeah, so those are those are what's in play. But um, the again, the the it's powerful in that countries are already uh, have approved ICAO Doc ninety three hundred three documents for cross border travel. But it's only for cross-border travel by government use only. What ICAO doesn't contemplate, because they have 193 member states that are concerned with cross-border travel. They're not concerned with you opening up a bank account with uh, using a passport. Um, so what does that mean? So um, in order to check the cryptographic uh, authenticity of the document, you need access to ICAO's public key directory or some master list. ICAO disallows the commercial use of their PKD, of their public key directory. Um, airlines can use it if directed by their member state to check the, the validity of a passport because that's um, countries do ask airlines to do that. Um, but there's but commercial use is disallowed. Um, ICAO has had a trial going on where you could apply as a commercial entity to use their PKD for certain things like COVID credentials, for example. Um, but right now, in general, it's disallowed for commercial use. The other reason why it's not really fit for purpose for um, commercial use is there's no selective disclosure. You're either getting DG1 and DG2 in its entirety or you're not getting anything. There's no selective disclosure. And it was by design. I'm not criticizing the uh, ICAO folks for doing this. It was intended uses for cross-border travel by governments. Governments don't want you to say, well, I'm not giving you my birth date. You don't need to know my birth They want the birth date. They'll get the birth date, right? Um, whereas if you're going into, uh, if you showed your passport to go to a bar to prove you're over 21, you're giving them all the information, whether it's the book or the DTC. You have to give them all that information. And if all they need to know is that you're over 21, do they really need your birth date and your same thing with a driver's license? Do they really need your birth date and your home address and uh, um, and whether you're an organ donor or not? No. Um, but yeah, so DTC is great for cross-border travel for government use only, but there's uh, it's not privacy enhancing. You asked about driver's licenses. So most driver's licenses regular plastic ones um, don't have a, a chip in it. They're not cryptographic devices. They don't have um, cryptographic signatures. Now they can have a barcode um, that's cryptographically signed that you could go back to the um, issuing agency to make sure that the integrity and authenticity of the barcode is legit. Those that do have a barcode is typically the textual information, not a photograph because the photographs would be kind of huge. Um, so most physical driver's license, um, what they do, like what TSA does, they put it in a machine, they read the teeny like one centimeter by one centimeter photograph, they digitize it and they compare that against the live face. That's, you know, you're just asking for problems because the resolution is very low on that. 
So there's no chip, so there's no photo in the chip. Um, where you have digital signatures, it's on typically on the biographic part. MDLs are different. So mobile driver's licenses, according to ISO um, 18013 uh, uh, 5 and soon-7, um, do have um, selective disclosure, do have cryptographic uh, elements that you can prove its authenticity and integrity and get selective disclosure. And yes, there's a, um, a photo that is supposed to comply with ISO quality standards within the MDL spec, and you can use that. The main thing that the MDL doesn't contemplate that other decentralized digital identity constructs do is zero knowledge proofs. So in that bar example, if the, like, so I, I have a Maryland mobile driver's license. So um, if Maryland wanted, they could, the Motor Vehicle Authority could issue three, they call them MDOCs, three cryptographically signed components of my mobile driver's license. One that says I'm over 18, so I could vote. One that says I'm over 21, so I could go to a bar. One that says I'm over 25, so I could rent a car, let's say. But they'd have to be issued by the trusted agency at the point at the time of issuance. Whereas W3C compliant verifiable credentials, you could derive those cryptographic proofs in using some protocols on the fly, basically. Where given your birth date cryptographically signed, you could derive cryptographic proofs from that okay. from that cryptographically signed birth date to prove you're over 18, 21, or 25. That's called a predicate proof. What does the ecosystem of verifiers look like? Like e even because the similarities between the DTC and a mobile driver's license is that they're they're focused on a specific credential, specific use case. However, on the mobile driver's license side of things, there are many use cases where relying parties or verifiers will use it. You just described a few based on just the the age checks, but it could just be general identification for just general types of interactions uh, as well. There's, there's plenty of them, right? Like I could prove that um, I am who I'm claiming to be when my bank teller is uh, to trying to help me do a financial transaction. I could use an MDL for that, but for the digital travel credential, it's just for a specific use case. So as this moves digital, it doesn't seem like the ecosystem of verifiers changes very much. And if that's the case, then like what um, what are the big benefits? You, you mentioned that you could kind of submit data to the proper agency or whoever needs to get your data before you're traveling. But what are the big benefits that are being identified here? Because it's, it's less of like a verifiable credential story, less of even a mobile driver's license story where you can imagine a lot of digital transformation happening and a lot of more value being created within an ecosystem. This is for a specific set of verifiers and it remains that. So what are the big benefits of moving towards a digital travel credential? The digital travel credential specifically, you know, in the ICAO sense of the, the term um, is really still uh, uh, relegated to cross-border travel. And the big advantage is well, for you know, for the member state that's um, that's getting the visitor that they could process ahead of time, the big advantage for the traveler is presumably 
if you share that information ahead of time, you'll get the benefit of hopefully expedited travel. That if you provided that ahead of time, maybe you could use these five lanes that are dedicated to, to pre-process folks as opposed to everybody else. But yeah, to your point, it's, it, it is a very closed ecosystem. Even the MDLs, um, you know, the, the, their equivalent of the ICAO PKD is being stood up by, um, they call it American Association of Motor Vehicle Authorities, but it really covers, uh, AMVA covers North America, you know, uh, well, they say North America, I know uh, Canada and the US, I don't know if it includes Mexico. Um, so they're setting up a very similar PKD. Now, there, there was just um, AMVA, the Better Identity Coalition and um, uh, IDEMIA just testified before Congress about um, uh, the, you know, what what's next, basically. And ACLU was on the panel as well, um, those four entities. It was just this uh, past week. And it goes to um, kind of what you're asking is, well, who could use this ecosystem? Who could use this and for what reason? And ACLU was, um, I think, right in certain aspects in that there's it's too much too soon. We don't we can't answer Matthew's question. We you know, who can use it um, in that bar example? The what why would I trust this this bartender or this convenience store operator to get my information electronically? If they say I need this information, what under what authority? Right. Well, right now I show my driver's license and, you know, and they could, I guess they, they can memorize it. But if when, once I share my data and they have my photograph in digital form and they have all my data, what, why should I trust them? What, and, and how do I know what legal constructs are there that says they have to delete that within X number of minutes or hours? Um, otherwise they're going to be fined, you know, of 10 grand or whatever that is. There's nothing. And that was kind of the issue. Actually, all four presenters basically said the same thing that it's, you know, these, these MDLs sound great and there's some ISO specs, but what is Congress doing? You know, what, what are the legal ramifications to protect the consumer when they share that data? How do I know that again, that they can legitimately legally ask for this information? Uh, similar things are going on with Europe in their EU digital identity wallet. Their, but their ecosystem is going to be the, 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 the equivalent of the PKD or the trust list that each member state um, has. One of the big questions, and they're just the, the trilogue um, just signed off on uh, the latest version of the architecture and reference framework. The trilogue is the commission, the parliament, and the council. That, those are the three legs of the trilogue. But when I asked the uh, commission, how do, how do I know? Because the legislation says that I share my PID, my personal identity information, when required by law. So if I go to Matthew's House of Pancakes or whatever, and they say, um, uh, and I need to prove that I'm whatever I need to prove, how do I know that they're legally um, allowed to ask for that information? There's a gap. They, 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 there's nothing there in the legislation. Oh, it'll be in the implementing act. So I think the same is going to be true for the MDL. And it goes back to your question, Matthew, is what's this ecosystem 
Like when we have the technical bits of the protocols and exchanges, we know what those um, can be, but it goes back to governance, um, I think. And we don't have the governance aspect. What are the what are you legally allowed to ask for? And what are the checks and balances to prove that A, you can ask for it, and B, once you get that information, what what can you do with it? You know, and how long can you hold it? Who can you share it with? Can you resell it? All those things we don't know. Which is very straightforward in this travel ecosystem because th these things are in place today. And if you're restricted to using it just in this these existing use cases, then it's just you're, you're not going to have all of these concerns right. with sharing the digital travel credential. And do, do you foresee, I guess a, a couple of questions here bucketed together. You mentioned ISO standards earlier. Are, is, is the digital travel credential based on a similar like ISO EID standard that like a, a mobile driver's license is based off of, or is, or is it something completely different? And then when we talk about wallets, I guess we would assume if it's just made for one use case that they're going to sit just within their own, their own applications, their own wallets that are going to be managed by, by the countries or member states of, of, of ICAO that allow you to kind of share this data with other member states beforehand, like they'll they'll just be these existing applications to to do so. So I guess just a couple of questions there on the standard and then just on how these DTCs are going to sit inside of applications or if we want to call them wallets. Right, right. Okay, some good questions there. So right now the DTC type one um is um is made up of like I was saying before from uh ICAO doc 9303 data group one which is totally text and data group two which is the photo the photo itself um whether it's DTC or e-passport um is um uh is uh not under control of uh, you know according to the ICAO spec should conform to ISO 3979-4-5. So the photo, so the ISO um, connection for a DTC is really only applies to DG2, the photo. And that's primarily for quality and the way it's um, formatted because 3979-4-5 is an interchange standard. In other words, how is it packaged for sharing? Um, and it has quality components. Now the entire data structure, the logical data structure of a DTC, the only thing that um, ICAO tells us, the techies, is it's an ASN.1 format. Now, how does it get to the wallet? How does it get from the wallet to the, um, uh, you know, to the country I'm traveling to, let's say? Undefined at this point. Um, the what the what it's probably going to happen, much like the MDL, it's going to rely on ISO standards such as the twenty three two twenty series. The twenty three two twenty series um, dash three, I believe, is how is issuance, and dash four is usage. So how does um, how does an um, an MDL get into uh, an MDL wallet, if you will? Uh, or how does a DTC get into a DTC wallet? It may be based, it, it may be in the future, um, ISO 23220 3 
And how does it get shared from my wallet to a, um, a relying party or to a verifier? Uh, it's probably going to be ISO 23220-4. But right now, that it is not spec'd out for the DTC. And it's emerging for the, um, uh, for the uh, MDL. So like for the MDL, uh, right now, um, 18013-5 is for proximity use only. So how does it get from the wallet to a verifier? One of three ways, right? Bluetooth, low, low energy, NFC, or um, uh, QR code. Um, in Dash 7, how does it get from my wallet to, you know, the UK or Uzbekistan, in my last example? That is probably going to be uh, uh, ISO 23220-4, um, you know, the usage. Um Yep. So that's um, the oh, and for the passport book, I think that was part of your question. There's a bunch of ISO standards in there because it has a chip. And um, so, like I said, the air interface protocol for the chip. So when you read it, like on eGate, um, you're reading the the chip from an antenna. Well, that's defined by ISO. Uh, 14443AB uh, for that air interface protocol. The chip itself um, is ISO 7816, you know, for the, for the physical format of the chip and all that, blah, blah, blah. So there's a bunch of ISO standards within that. And like I said, the photo itself is ISO 39794-5 and blah, blah, blah. Um, there's uh, a bunch of ISO standards in the Passport book. But I think in the DTC, the only one I'm familiar with is for the photo itself. So really, like having a DTC is going to be a benefit to the traveler to make it more seamless to, to get in and out or out and then into to different places. And so if, if we think about different programs that exist today, like we're starting to see, I've actually seen this in airports now, I think in the San Francisco airport uh, a few months ago, like. If, if you have the this clear application, you're able to kind of go quicker or we have these like Nexus programs that you're able to get in and out quicker. Um, that just means, I guess, that they, they've done identity verification. They, they've done background checks. They've reduced the risk to make it, I guess, more seamless for you to travel. But we can maybe start achieving some of these th same things by having DTCs. Is that a reasonable uh, comparison, I guess? Yeah, it's a, it's a good comparison that... Um, yeah, the traveler by sharing information ahead of time uh, can, uh, you know, maybe um, act, may be able to access um, uh, speedier, you know, processing, right? Um, like Nexus is a trusted traveler lane, um, and having been chief engineer for that for a number of years, the main difference there is you you gave your ten prints in your face, and they're doing continuous vetting. So what does that mean? So every time, so when you apply, you're checked against these terrorist watch lists, these criminal watch lists to make sure you're not a criminal. Any And every time there's something added to that watch list, it's checked against us, the trusted travelers. So if, you know, if I applied and I'm a good guy, and then a year later I, I get in trouble criminally, then my fingerprints or whatever, you know, would show up. Uh, under criminal activity, and they probably kick me out of the program. Um, so that's what continuous vetting means. It's, you're continuously getting checked against these watch lists. 
So there's registered travelers, which are just that. They're registered. They're known. But they might not be trusted in that. They're not going through all these background checks. Um, but because you're known, you're and, – and you um, – uh, so like in the U.K., uh, they had a registered traveler program, and I was. They didn't do, you know, they didn't collect biometrics from me. They they just said you have to cross the border four times, um, and and uh, and and not have any problems. Then you could start using the e gates. So that was a registered traveler. I'm a I'm a German registered traveler. I didn't provide any biometrics. I just give them my passport book. They put it on file. And now when I cross into Germany, in and out of Germany, I could use the e-gates. Now, because of their uh, Schengen law, they still have to stamp my passport, but I don't have to wait in the line with the rest of the Americans. I could go through that lane. That's a registered traveler lane. Because I registered and they they kind of know me, they didn't, again, they didn't do a background check, um, a fingerprint-based background check, but because I've crossed the border a number of times and I registered with them, then they, they've had no problems with Dan. They let me continue going through that. But that's the difference between registered traveler and trusted traveler. So looking forward, you mentioned there's some pilots happening throughout the world for DTC type one, which is self-derived. And just to recap, DTC type two is authority derived. So it gets issued by the authority. And DTC type three is it gets issued by the authority, but there's no need for a physical booklet anymore. Right. So in, in terms of adoption, so there's pilot projects happening in that first DTC type one bucket, which is self-derived. So I'm able to tap my passport against my phone and the application is able to pick up information in there. And I guess there's testing happening with different, different airports, different uh, customs authorities. Um, what what does kind of the state of these pilots look like today, and uh, how do you see this evolving? I guess over we, we often talk about like how verifiable credential adoption is going, and mobile driver's license adoption is going. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts of how you see the adoption of DTCs happening in the near medium future. Yeah, I think we're going to see more and more uh, adoption, especially you know pilots, um, but. Again, the DTCs are just like the passport book. You um, right now, there's no uh, stamping or the like. We talked about the ETA, the Electronic Travel Authorization. Well, if you had um, uh, a trusted wallet, you could have a bunch of things in that wallet, including an ETA. You could have entry exit stamps in there. You could have COVID credentials in there. Um, right now, the um, the logical data structure of the DTCs don't support that. Now, maybe when the final DTC type two spec comes out, you'll you will be able to um, have other um, elements in the logical data structure besides DG one and DG two. Maybe you can have um, something for an ETA or something for others. Now, what Arkeo has. Um, or, or a visa, for example, like a, um, a truly, I, I'm hesitating because right now we have this concept of an e-visa, which you apply and you get electronically versus a paper visa that's stuck into your passport. An e-visa is typically an ETA, electronic travel authorization or an ESTA or um, 
something like that. They they kind of confuse the issue by calling them e visas. Um, but the what Ikea was talking about is having um, a, a visual digital seal. It's a barcode. It's not electronic, but that could replace some of these things like a uh, like a, a visa sticker. Um, but now it's a barcode that could be stuck in your passport book, or it could be um, a barcode that's you know physically in your wallet, so you could share a PDF of your you know of that um, visual digital seal. Um, so I, I think that could come in, and they'll probably call it an e visa at that point. But uh, um, I see that you know being layered on top of a DTC uh, not being added. Same thing with um, COVID credentials, right? If we ever have um, a health emergency again, whether it's mad cow disease or, you know, COVID or something where you have to prove uh, a health, you know, uh, something health related, you could have um, one of these barcodes in your wallet that you could share again ahead of time and or at the border. Um, but I, I see those type of things. Whereas, if you know, in a in a W three C world, you know, it's it, they're all just verifiable credentials um, that could be um, shared using selective disclosure. Uh, could be shared using the secure protocol that uh, surrounds W three C compliant verifiable credentials. Again, here. DTC, there's no protocol to share DTCs yet. There's no protocol to share visual digital seals yet, right? Um, but I, that's why I say you, you're just layering on various credentials in your wallet with a TBD on how do you securely share those in a privacy-enhancing fashion. We just don't know yet. And, and you know, the MDL spec... You know, if you just decompose it and talk about a collection of MDOCs, that could be a way to share it. But motor vehicle authorities are not necessarily in the business of provisioning um, COVID credentials uh, or e-visas, right? So who's going to be the responsible authority for that? I guess I see it's more logical to see MDOCs or mobile driver's licenses sitting in the same applications or wallets as different verifiable credentials because there's no restriction on, on how these things could be shared with relying parties. There, there's obviously different protocols and different things evolving, but you you could imagine these things kind of sitting together and having benefit for the the citizen or the consumer uh, because they're sitting in one application ver versus the DTC, I guess, because it's just single purpose use. Um, you wonder whether it, it even makes any sense to have that sitting in that same conceptual wallet or having an agent on top of it versus like, I just want to use whatever my travel authorities application is and I'm able to have it in there and it just makes my life a little easier. It helps me travel quicker and reduces friction when I'm crossing borders and at the airports and such. So it'll be interesting to see how this thing evolves and what the strategy is for, I guess, implementers of wallets and applications to see where, where these things uh, sit in and whether or not they need to sit in the, together or not. But at this present moment, the way you're explaining it, it really sounds like because it's single purpose only and because ICAO doesn't want any commercial use of their PKI system, 
it probably uh, makes less sense for these things to sit in the same wallets that where you would have verifiable credentials. But maybe maybe I'm totally off with this comment, but that's that's what I'm getting from this conversation. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I think nations legislate the use of, um, you know, ICAO Doc 9303 compliant machine readable travel documents because it's a very controlled, closed ecosystem uh, that they, that they um, yeah, that they don't have to worry about um, you know, non-government entities polluting the ecosystem or, yeah, or breaking security and things like that. Yeah, so you have less of an issue when it comes to um, validating like the authoritativeness and authority of issuers and stuff like that. It's just that the, the governance is very set in stone today and it's going to stay as it is and you're not going to have any new kind of use cases or or um new scenarios that require further governance or further thinking so it's very again fr from an adoption standpoint probably makes it easier yeah yeah i would agree thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as i do if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice to make sure you're notified of new episodes that may be of interest to you. If you're looking to connect, feel free to reach out directly to me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Catch you all later.